Welcome back, guys, to episode 30 of the JPS podcast. And today I'm very honored to have the very jacked, strong, and wonderful Liana Carr. Here's a flex, Liana. <laughs> there she is. Um, I gotta get a pump on. <laughs> <laughs> you can't flex without a pump, right? And for those of you who may not be aware, Liana is very heavily involved uh, in the bodybuilding powerlifting community. She has a degree in sports psychology um, and is actively working uh, to inspire and empower women as a coach at Iron Women, as well as working for a non-for-profit foundation, Smart uh, Fit Girls. So she's doing a lot of really good things. And in today's episode, we're going to be discussing all things psychology um, as I relate to female athletes, you know, specifically in the context of, you know, strength sports and physique. So Liana, to give the listeners some background about you, um, beyond what I've just told them, obviously, um, can you outline how you got into the lifting game, transitioned from cheerleader to party girl, I believe, and then into mm-hmm. one of the US of A's leading figure athletes and powerlifters? Oh, man. All right. Well, first of all, I'm super excited to be on here. Thank you for having me. Um, And yeah, we'll just get started. I um, guess I would say that I started lifting. So I got my first gym membership um, about six years ago. And this was so this was an official gym membership. I was very active. I was an athlete and a competitive cheerleader um, for probably about eight, nine years growing up. So I was always active in that regard. And then College came around, of course, and then you know how college is. Especially, I went to I went to the University of Georgia, so we were known for being a party school um, and gained a little bit of weight. Um, really, it wasn't until my junior year of undergrad where I just you know had gained some weight. I was feeling really like, I mean, just as you know, low low confidence, low self esteem. I just didn't really feel good about myself, and I missed. Um, you know, being as active as I was uh, whenever I was a cheerleader. So I got a gym membership. I set out to lose some weight as a New Year's resolution. Um, and I'm definitely the type of person who whenever I, you know, I, I dedicate myself to a goal, I'm just like an all or nothing type of person. So I immersed myself in the gym. I loved lifting weights. I loved, you know, obviously I, I started, you know, going to the gym to lose weight and to look a certain way. But then I found that, you know, going to the gym and performing and getting stronger and hitting PRs, that was something that just challenged me in a completely different way. And that's kind of when I got into figure, I decided, all right, you know, I I lost some weight, I look good, I'm gonna do a figure competition. I think like most people, that's kind of how how they tend to get into it. Exactly. They're like, you know what, I, I, I can do this, I can, you know, drop an extra 20 pounds on top of what I've already lost. And you know, step up on stage. And, you know, obviously, once I dieted down, I realized, like, holy cow, I actually have no muscle. <laughs> um, and then after that, it was, you know, I think the very typical story of, you know, you see yourself at your absolute best on stage, you see yourself at your leanest, I went from 165 pounds to about 120. And that was a huge difference. And then obviously, I dealt with a lot of the psychological mm-hmm. turmoil that um, athletes go through, physique athletes go through post-show. So that's kind of when I found powerlifting. And then I, you know, was like, all right, you know, instead of focusing on the way that I look or being a certain number on the scale, I'm going to start putting my efforts towards getting stronger in the gym and towards my performance. So I started powerlifting at the University of Georgia. Um, and then, yeah, that's, that's kind of where I'm at right now. No, it's very cool. And I think, um, you know, your journey 
is obviously unique in many regards, but very common, um, you know, for physique athletes, they get into the bodybuilding or they get into the gym to try and, you know, improve self-esteem, how they look, how they feel. They start making some gains, compete, and then realize that, holy crap, you know, this dieting thing uh, is a lot harder than I thought. Um, and, you know, I'm pretty messed up, always worrying about how I look. And they shift that focus to performance and powerlifting and they get into powerlifting. So that's what we're going to talk about today. But to wind back the clock to bodybuilding um, and obviously the consequences of natural bodybuilding, you know, they're quite well known. Um, and for women, obviously extended periods like at hypercaloric conditions, like getting really low body fat percentages can cause a lot of havoc for the reproductive system. Um, were there times in your bodybuilding career that you saw, you know, a lot of these physical health issues come about? Um, and how did they then affect your, you know, mental state um, during those periods? Okay, and this is um, a really good question. And I think it, you know, definitely affects people differently. But just to kind of talk a little bit about that. I think um, I actually did a research paper um, about two years ago. So this was after I'd already competed mm -hmm. and I had already dealt with the emotional and psychological turmoil that something that was coined as, you know, the epitome of health, right? So we see bodybuilding, we see competitors, we go to fitness expos and industries and these women and men, they have six packs and they look great. And they're like, holy cow, like they must be really healthy. Um, and then obviously after a while you get into the industry and then you get to see like the, the, the back end of it and you see that, okay, you know, these, these people look healthy, but they are the furthest thing from that. You know, there's a lot of psychopathology that is involved in physique sports, um, like eating orders, body dysmorphia, low self-esteem. Um, and that was kind of what I learned going to school for sports psychology um, in my master's program. I learned that about 75% of people, um, give or take, um, who are attracted to uh, whether it be physique-related sports or weight class sports um, have suffered at some point um, from some sort of low body image or eating, or not even eating disorder, but disordered eating background um, in the past. And a lot of people who are drawn to competing in physique sports, they are looking to fill some sort of void that eating or, you know, their diseating or disordered eating habits um, weren't able to fulfill at one point. So that was like something that I did yeah. research on. And I was like, holy cow. So not only are the people who are drawn to physique sports already, not everybody, but a lot of us are prone to already have had some sort of low body image um, issues in the past. But when you obviously put something that is just so like you said demanding on the body um, not only hormonally but you know being in a calorically restricted state for a very long time has a lot of impact on just the, your physical well-being and your psychological well-being it's um kind of a recipe for disaster mm. you know um so that's kind of that's that's the part that I'm I, I was interested in sports psychology literally because of the psychological aspects you know that I suffered whenever I competed and I see so many athletes, um, so many athletes who do a show and they are, you know, they're on this high, right? They, they chase or they do a contest prep for, you know, five, six months, however long it is sometimes longer. And they're, they're motivated and they're able to adhere to 
their diet and their training because they have this end goal. And then whenever that end goal is taken away from them, um, they not only have just like a very skewed way of thinking when it comes to food, like counting every macro to a T, which isn't, it's not bad. Obviously it's something that we need to do in order to reach these very strict and specific goals. But at the same time, um, it is clinically categorized as disordered eating. Mm. Um, so I think it's kind of knowing when to be able to flip the switch between a contest prep and regular life. And unfortunately, a lot of the habits that are learned in a contest prep, um, people don't know how to get out of that. So they go into an off season, um, and they have no idea how to eat normally. You know, they've, they've been so food focused for so long. They, they like go to sleep at night, like looking at pictures of food, (laughs) you know, they, um, they, they, you know, spend hours upon hours, you know, just planning out their meals, like what they're going to eat. They're, they develop this crazy food focus. Um, and then they, they, they think of it as like a, this is, this is taking me towards my goal. This is mm. the right thing to do. And then after a show, when they don't have that goal anymore, they're just completely lost. And that's when you see like, you know, just crazy binge eating, um, habits. Um, you see people who just lose control completely of their goals. They're not only, you know, putting on weight, but in a way that's just like very detrimental mm. to their health and their well-being. And then they want to just go ahead and diet again. So it just kind of creates this really messed up cycle that I'm sure you probably are aware of. Yes, yeah, so I've definitely experienced much of that uh, myself. And something that we try to get our athletes to do now, obviously being more informed, is to start from a position of strength, which, you know, like you were saying, encompasses healthy relationship with food, you know, understanding of the process and that the competition physique is not something that's sustainable um, and all of those important um, things related to, you know, their diet, psychology and all the rest of it. But what is your advice now having all the knowledge and experience that you have in dealing um, with the contest prep and all those issues that arise, um, how do you advise your clients during um, those periods where their psychological health um, is really taking a hit due to the contest prep, whether it be in the the contest prep itself and then coming out of it? Um, I think that the first thing is before even partaking in a contest prep, um, seeing what their motivation for that contest prep is. Um, Not everybody is meant to compete just because you have lost a good amount of weight and you're, and there's nothing wrong with that, you know, but you, I think a lot of times people, they have this, you know, perception of like, all right, I, I went from, you know, I've lost 30 pounds. I'm ready to take my body to an extreme and then they do it too soon. Mm. Um, and that's the thing. They don't give themselves enough time to build up, you know, really good behaviors when it comes to eating. Um, all they've ever known is how to lose weight. And, uh, you know, obviously the, the contest prep is the easy part. I think um, it's, I it's afterwards, <laughs> you know. So I think that just seeing what their motivation is behind competing. And you can kind of tell if a person is actually motivated to compete because they seek, um, you know, the need for achievement. Like they want to do it from themselves. They want to achieve something or they're doing it because they fear failure or they think that you know they have some sort of external pressure to do it Mm. or they still don't really like where they're at now so they think that once they get to a position where they are stage lean they'll love themselves um and you can just kind of look at their behaviors you know somebody say somebody says you know they want to compete um and they're like you know coach sign me up i'm ready you have to ask them, okay, so what have your off-season behaviors look like? You know, like what 
if we say that you're going to start a contest prep in the next two months, what are your behaviors going to look like in the next two months? Are you going to just gorge yourself with food because you feel like you have to take advantage of this, mm. you know, window until you start your prep? Um, or are you going to kind of behave in a way that like demonstrates like this is something you really want to do? I'm going to, you know, continue eating. I'm going to continue training in a way that is conducive to my overall goal. Um, you can look at a person's latency and like how how long that they take um, whenever they're first given the opportunity to do something versus how long they actually take to do something. So yeah. just taking an example, um, cardio, right? Or maybe even weight training or whatever it is. Um, and just, you know, living with Alberto and he just finished a contest prep. He did cardio first thing in the morning as soon as he woke up because it was the first opportunity that he had to get it out of the way because he knew that it would contribute to the overall goal. People who procrastinate, people who dread going to the gym, people who are like, oh, I've got to get my cardio in during this contest prep, you're probably not really motivated for yourself in order to be able to do this. Um, and yeah, there are just a bunch of different things. So just, I guess, seeing what their actual incentive is for doing a contest prep, um, I think that that's kind of where it begins. And then obviously, um, throughout the entire contest prep cycle, I think that... Um, of clients and they sorry you know, Liana sorry it just, it just cut out there my bad so um, okay. their incentive for the goal they're sorry their incentive to compete and then shoot from there and I'll just snip this out okay so did you get like the all all that I said about their incentive to compete yes yeah 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 okay great so really you just have to look at what their incentive is to compete um, and then I think the second thing is hiring a coach who is aware of the psychological adversities that a contest prep can create. Um, and I'm sure, you know, I see this all the time and it grinds my gears and I'm sure that you do too. But um, there are just, you know, so many local contest prep coaches near me who have hundreds of clients who brag about, you know, my, I, I've won, you know, so and so overalls, like I, they brag about their clients' achievements and they take the responsibility of their client's health. Um, so they, they do their training for them. They do their nutrition for them. And they don't tend to their psychological needs. And that is something that is so huge and it's extremely irresponsible. Um, mm. If you see a client having just really, really disordered, uh, you know, food focus throughout their prep, if they're like posting like, you know, five, six things about, you know, their low calorie, like salad and all their Walden Farms dressings and like to a point where it's excessive, then that's something that you need to intervene on because that's, that's not healthy and that's not normal. Um, if you are constantly dealing with a client who is having binge episodes, who was like, I don't even know what happened. Um, I just went off this weekend and I lost control and I'm up 10 pounds. Okay we're humans and that happens. But if that's something that's happening Regular. regularly, then that's something that, um, it needs to be addressed. And there are just like so many things that a coach should be doing 
throughout the contest prep to ensure that, you know, obviously that we're doing everything that we can for them to reach their goals, but we're doing it in a way that's keeping their mental health at the forefront because that's so important. So whether that be, you know, continuing to nurture um, their basic psychological needs in order to create motivation that is, you know, sustaining and that is for themselves or whether to, you know, continually ask them, how are you feeling? Like, what is your goal? Do you feel like, you know, like, do you have a, do you buy into the plan? Like, do you have a sense of self when you're thinking about these goals? Like what, how, like just asking them. Um, and then obviously just kind of preparing them psychologically for the post contest phase, you know, telling them this obviously isn't a look or a physique that is maintainable, nor it should be. Um, and then just kind of giving them other goals to look forward to after their show I think that you know like where coaches are in charge of training their nutrition but there are also many different strategies that they need to implement implement throughout the entire duration of the contest prep to ensure that they're you know staying actually healthy yeah I think they're all brilliant points and yeah it's really good for other coaches to be able to clearly understand that you know contest prep coaching is not just about training and diet and if you don't follow the plan then you know, and that's your fault or if issues happen, just follow the plan. It very much needs to encompass that psychological aspect as well, um, which should be almost an umbrella over the training and the diet to make sure that everything is, you know, being upheld, like you said, as best it can given the circumstances. And it sounds like bodybuilding is a really shitty sport. And by the <laughs> way, we can we can swear on this podcast now. It's, it's cool. Okay, cool. <laughs> um, <clears throat> it sounds like it's a really horrible sport, but... I think that bodybuilding brings with it a lot of very important lessons, um, you know, principles and just habits and behaviors, obviously, outside of all the, you know, neurotic and extreme stuff that can be transferable to not only other sports, but to life. And what I wanted to ask you was, what did you find from bodybuilding um, that made you a great powerlifter? Um, yeah, so just to kind of um, go on your statement, I don't think that bodybuilding is a shitty sport. I think Me that, um, <laughs> I mean, there, there are definitely times where, um, you know, they're, they're, they create, you know, not the healthiest um, just obsessions and all that kind of stuff. And they, they, they it isn't for everyone. Mm. Um, but I think that there are ways to make it healthier, kind of like I said, Um and they teach you obviously a lot about yourself, just enough where you know we're both continuing to compete, right? Um, it's something that I think after my first show, I was like, all right, I'm done. I hated this. <laughs> and then I did my second season of shows. I did pretty well, and I was like, all right, you know, it wasn't that bad. And I think that every season is just a learning experience. Uh, but like I said, there are just there are ways that you can counteract, um, and obviously not all of them. There's a point where you're just a little bit crazy the last couple of weeks leading up to that show. But if you can hold off that crazy and then get away from it um, as, as urgent as possible, then it doesn't have to be something that is inherently bad. I think that it can teach you um, the importance of discipline, the, the fact that, and I, I guess I just kind of realized this this past year. Um, in the past, I've always done either only bodybuilding so I'll be doing a contest prep or I'll completely switch gears and do only powerlifting 
Um, and I, I just won't keep up with my secondaries. I don't even do like an entire, like a bicep curl throughout the entire season. And then, you know, so I, it's just always been like one or the other for me. And um, I guess one thing that I've learned in the past year, just having not competed in either. So it's been um, three years since I've actually done a competition, which is like absolutely like crazy to me. I'm going to at some point, but I think um, just admiring, you know, my close friends around me who've done contest preps, I've actually just been able to appreciate the art that is bodybuilding. Mm -hmm. It is absolutely insane that you can train in a certain way and you can eat in a certain way to completely sculpt your physique um, exactly how you want it. Like obviously with genetics and all that, that kind of stuff plays a role, but it's, it's pretty insane. Like if you have the willpower and you have the mental fortitude to do something, you can see it through. Um, and uh, I also realized that you don't have to have an immediate goal, a competition goal, in order to continue uh, um, applying that same willpower and motivation and just, you know, just like our like urgency to wake up every morning and try to be better um, when it comes to either bodybuilding or powerlifting. I think that, you know, obviously what I've learned when it has come to bodybuilding is like the more muscle you have, the stronger you're going to be essentially. So, which is, it's the cool part, right? Um, and I, yeah, yeah. So it's just like, all right, just because I'm not going to be powerlifting immediately in, you know, the next couple of months. And that isn't my choice. I've actually been coming off a couple injuries, which, you know, they, I feel great, which is, you know, super exciting, but I'm not in a rush to rush the process because I truly love the place that I'm in right now. And I've realized that, you know, like being able to control something, there are a lot of things in life that you just don't have control over. Um, Mm. But when it comes to how doing something that makes you feel good, when it comes to your training, when it comes to, you know, your nutrition, all that kind of stuff, that's pretty much always something that you have control over. You know, yeah, sometimes you have to work around different circumstances. Like if you do have an injury, you have to work around that. But that doesn't mean that you can't continue doing things to make yourself better. So, yeah, yeah, that's I, I guess the big yeah, thing. I really think all of those things are important and no doubt a lot of bodybuilders make for great powerlifters due to you know what they learn in bodybuilding and i think it's a natural progression for a lot of bodybuilders but you don't see it going the other way which i think is really interesting you don't see anyone sign up at the gym and say hey i've you know i'm just coming from the couch i want to be a powerlifter um yeah, you know yeah. it's very much the natural progression like you said and i think it's very useful for powerlifters to be spending, you know, like you are now, significant periods of time doing the bodybuilding work, um, learning to manage their body composition. They don't necessarily need to get on stage, but I think all of those things become important for success in both sports. And Yeah, and then also paying attention to the small details that bodybuilding teaches you. Um, I think that in order to have a sustainable powerlifting career, you know, obviously technique and form are huge in that. And then obviously, you know, when you have more muscle mass, you're going to just be able to sustain for, or like, you know, just not be as prone to injuries, that kind of stuff. So I think that, you know, with bodybuilding, you learn about the mind muscle connection and just, you pay attention to the small details. And I think that that's something that powerlifters could probably um, take away from bodybuilders. It's like, all right, am I doing this with the correct form? Am I lifting in a smarter way? That kind of stuff. I definitely agree. And obviously the psychology of bodybuilding and powerlifting, there's obviously there's a lot of carryover, but there are 
quite a number of distinctions because excellence and success on the bodybuilding stage, you know, requires that, you know, willpower, motivation and discipline to be sustained pretty much 24-7 for the duration of the contest prep because nutrition follows us everywhere. Food is everywhere and it's something that, you know, we can't just leave to the gym. Whereas powerlifting, it's very much, you know, you go to the gym, you've got to dedicate for those few hours, maybe a few extra. Am I still here? Sorry, my connection just cut off. Um, that's cool. Okay, I didn't, I didn't get any of that. Sorry, right. can oh, you repeat okay. that? No, that's okay. cool. And obviously, the psychology of powerlifting is vastly different to bodybuilding in many regards. Um, you know, bodybuilding requires 365, um, you know, days of dedication, discipline. If you're in a contest prep, for example, because nutrition and food follows us everywhere. Um, whereas powerlifting, obviously, success and excellence on the platform is by and large dictated by what you do in training, which is only, you know, say 10 hours a week with a couple of extra, you know, mobility rehab sessions on the side. So in comparison, some big differences there. But the main one is that, you know, to be uh, a great powerlifter, you need to have confidence and obviously a number of other mental attributes. So what do you see to be, you know, the most important psychological components, um, you know, related to self-belief, confidence on the platform? And how did you go about, you know, improving those coming from, you know, bodybuilding to powerlifting? Yeah, I think that that's a really, really good point. You know, there's obviously a bunch of factors that have some layover, but in order to do well as a powerlifter, you have to learn how to compete and you have to perform um, on game day, which is like the really crappy part, right? I've seen so many times where powerlifters, they dedicate so much time to their training. Everything's going well. You know, they're on, you know, path to set like a ton of PRs, you know, the personal best at their meet or even like win. And then meet day comes up and they end up just doing completely terribly or in my case, once upon a time, bombing out of like one of the biggest meets of your entire life, um, which was Arnold 2014 for me. No, 2015. I don't remember. But it was one of those things that, um, yeah, when it comes to performance-based sport, like being able to perform on game day is everything. It, it, it genuinely is. Um, obviously, the way that training goes um, leading up to a meet can completely affect the your self-confidence and your you know self-efficacy going into the meet and your ability to perform. But at the same time, um, I think that emotional regulation and being able to find that sweet spot when it comes to um, anxiety control or regulation on game day is super important. So I think that, you know, one thing that before any athlete competes and I don't, you know, it doesn't matter how many times I've done a meet, every single meet, I feel a little bit of anxiety. I'm nervous. Mm. You know, you have the physiological effects that come along with anxiety. You're sweating, your heart palpates, your blood pressure is high. Um, and a lot of times athletes, they perceive that as something that's a bad thing. You know, they, they feel all these, these symptoms and they're like, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, like, what do I do? They freak out. They get in their heads too much. And then the, more than likely, you know, they, the self-doubt starts to roll in. They're like, holy cow, like I'm not ready. I shouldn't be feeling this way. And then they can't compete well. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that the biggest thing when it comes to that is just realizing that an emotion is a reaction to any sort of input um, or any sort of life of event that happens. So we all have emotions. Um, 
and they're either positive or negative. Um, you know, positive emotions, happy, joy, that kind of stuff. And then negative emotions, fear, um, anxiety, like just, just doubt, all that kind of stuff. We all feel them, but it's important to be able to realize like just because you feel an emotion doesn't inherently mean that it's a bad thing. So when you have, um, you know, a little bit of doubt before a meet or before you perform, just kind of changing the way that you appraise that emotion. So changing the way that you view that emotion, um, it's not necessarily a bad thing. I'm having all, like, I'm anxious because I'm excited because I've been working my butt off for this meet because I, you know, put in so much time and effort and it means a lot to me. But I'm having all these emotions because it means that I'm ready and kind of just changing the way that you feel. Mm. It can completely, completely change your self-confidence on game day. Um, And yeah, all that kind of stuff. Yeah, I think a lot of really brilliant points here. And anxiety is a very common one, especially among females who you know do feel a little bit more pressure you know on the platform obviously males aren't exempt exempt from that but you know in my experience working with males and females you know a lot of the males a lot of bravado a lot of ego and arrogance they're pretty keen to get out there and do the work and females at times can sometimes you know be fearful and doubt especially when they're new to the sport and something that obviously impacts game day performance and longevity in the sport of powerlifting which i've seen to be really common is you know allowing emotion um to arise when we're training and to allow you know training performance to dictate our emotions and feelings about the sport in a whole and then obviously that can start very early on in the piece, in a training cycle, for example, and then just snowball into a meet. Um, is there has there been a time in your in your powerlifting um, where you've been so caught up on the numbers and you've let them dictate, you know, your happiness, mood, how you feel about the sport in general, um, and how how have you dealt with that? Yeah, I think that that's um, something that all elite athletes kind mm. of deal with at one point. You know, just becoming too emotionally invested into their goals into their training all that stuff and I wouldn't say it's a bad thing because there's that's probably a huge reason why you know we're the the caliber of athletes that we are is because we care too Mm -hmm. dang much you know so I think um it's not necessarily a bad thing but at the same time just like you know we have periodization with when it comes to our training we have you know mesocycles and macrocycles that focus on specific um you know training goals it's also really important to be able to incorporate mental training strategies in the exact same way. So obviously, like when it comes to a beginner lifter, um, they have low self-esteem, they have low confidence, they're just getting into the sport. Um, they don't, they haven't had enough experience to build up that competency, which is something that comes when you continue to win, essentially, or when you continue to see success. You know, the more success that you see. Um, the more comfortable you are when it comes to like technique or when it comes to, you know, your training, uh, the more competent you're going to be. But at the same time, with that comes experience and a lot of experience is needed. And sometimes, you know, it takes three, four meets to be able to gain that competency. But as a coach, it's important to be able to instill that into your athletes um, from the beginning. So whether it be giving them positive reinforcement or positive feedback um, or even like specific feedback that they can improve on. So when it comes to, you know, their lifts, like, you know, having them record their videos and being able to 
look at their videos, seeing, you know, what, what is it that I'm doing wrong? Having like asking them questions, you know, not just saying, okay, this is what you're supposed to be doing, but allowing them to be a part of that process. It allows them to continue learning and they start to become more competent in their form and technique. Um, you know, just, just basically like just giving them, you know, positive feedback, telling them, all right, like, you know, like this, this week didn't go super well, but at the same time, um, we're still on track, you know, obviously not lying to them to like fluff them up, but just being an encouraging, um, role model in their life. Because I think that, you know, most athletes, you can ask any athlete. I think we, we all had that one person growing up that we just learned a lot from who, uh, you know, shaped our beliefs when it came to whatever sport it was or who we learned a lot from. Um, the same can go with like professors and teachers. So it's important to play that role. Um, and then it's also important to, you know, teach them different techniques during their trainings, things like, you know, positive self-talk or visualization. Like before a heavy squat day, visualize, close your eyes and visualize yourself making the lift. Um, it's called mental imagery rehearsal as well. And it basically is a huge way to be able to build up their confidence. Um, it allows them to visually see, all right, this is, you know, it's, they see themselves capable of doing the lift, which is huge, you know, like they, if they visualize themselves actually doing the lift, they're going to be more confident. They're like, okay, I've got this. But also when it comes to like cues and different feedback and technique, that kind of stuff, they'll feel more confident. So I think that encouraging that throughout different micro cycles like all right this this next four weeks we're really going to focus on visualization and talking positively about yourself you know maybe this next cycle will focus on some other techniques but it's important to be able to build up that confidence during training so it'll translate over to whenever they're actually able to perform yeah i agree wholeheartedly with that and that's something that i actually do with a lot of my athletes um, and something that was taught to me when I was younger when I used to play tennis. Funny story, I actually, for those of you who are interested in my tennis career, my coach uh, forced me to sit down and meditate instead of actually practicing, practicing tennis and do visualization techniques for hours, hours a week over the course of six months and I wasn't allowed to hit a ball for six months. I was just told wow. to visualize and meditate because I was a little bit of a brat on the court. I used to throw rackets and things. Yeah. And most people think that these visualization, you know, positive imagery and mindset techniques are very fluffy and, you know, aren't, you know, scientifically back, backed and don't have evidence behind them. But they actually do. I remember there was a study on kickboxers and they assessed the performance of kickboxers, um, those who used um, positive imagery and visualization techniques and those who didn't and the ones who you know use the mindset techniques actually saw improved performance so it is a practice that you know has merit and I think it's something that a lot of athletes um, you know ignore again you know coming back to the bodybuilding where we have coaches who just focus on training nutrition I think a lot of athletes want to excel but they ignore you know addressing the mindset side of things so really good points on that Liana and Moving from there, I wanted to talk about, you know, this whole self-love thing and get all, get all uh, fluffy now with that. But again, this is something that's really important for success in, you know, both sports. Yes. Can um, I say one more thing on that last topic? Yeah, of course. Go. Yeah. So I think that um, you said it's, a, it's something that actually isn't bogus, right? I think that for the longest time, I was under the impression, I was like, ah, oh, you know, it's just 
like psychology, it kind of has like a, you know, negative stigma to it. Like people are like, oh, I don't need to see a psychologist. Um, I, I can figure it out. Like there's nothing inherently wrong with me. But I think that um, people end up or even like athletes end up seeing psychologists or sports psychologists or just, you know, counselors um, whenever something goes wrong. And if you look at any elite athlete across the board, so and I'm talking about like Olympic level athletes, I'm talking about, you know, just like elites, like at the very top, they all understand that the mental component um, that has driven them to be as successful as they have is so important. So not only with their nutrition and like, think about it, if you want to be the best that you can be, you're going to try to control all factors that you know can positively, you know, like correlate to that. And that comes with nutrition when it comes to training, all that kind of stuff. But at the same time, you'll see that, you know, like you said, there's a lot of research that shows that, you know, mindfulness, um, positive self-talk, emotion regulation, all that kind of stuff. It does positively impact performance. There is, you know, the whole study of sports psychology is essentially studying what factors, and there are multiple different factors, but what factors um, can lead to optimal performance. And like you said, there's a lot of research out there and you'll see that, all right, like, yeah, I think a lot of people, um, do neglect that stuff, but you'll never see a high-level athlete neglect that stuff. Yeah, and no, I completely agree, and that's something that was brought to my attention back in the tennis uh, tennis days. But that's what often separates the good from the great, you know, yeah. is what's between their ears. And the issue that I see arising is we have so many people who come from, you know, being just general lifters and, you know, just training for the love of it, transition into a sport, they become good at the sport for whatever reason, but then as amateur athletes, they don't recognize that, you know, to take that next step, it's often not, you know, their physical abilities that's the limiting factor that separates them from, you know, the elite level athletes. It's what's, you know, psychologically preventing them from unlocking that, you know, physical potential, so to speak. Absolutely. And then, um, also tending to motivation, which is huge um, throughout the duration. I think that that's a huge thing I see as well. People, they love powerlifting. They get into it. They're you know, going balls to the wall. Yeah, exactly. And then, you know, they, they fall off, whether that be um, they weren't, they burned out. So they just, you know, invested all their energy into it. And it became something that they no longer wanted because they loathed it because it was something that, mm-hmm. you know, they were too emotionally invested in or, um, yeah, you know, they just lose motivation. And I think that, you know, the same can be said. Um, sports psychology is not only important for performers, but also just, you know, the everyday exerciser. Um, yeah. To be able to adhere to an exercise plan, you have to, you know, people are obviously very motivated when they first set a goal. But in order to see that goal through, you have to stay motivated um, throughout the duration of it. And I think that that's something that, you know, sports psychology can 100% um, be capable of helping do so yeah definitely and it's funny i actually had this question um that i wanted to ask you today but i thought based on how our discussion was going it'd be good to transition into the self-love stuff but let's digress back to that um and talk about sustainability in powerlifting so there's a huge drop-off rate um in powerlifting like obviously it's very hard to measure because people come into the sport go out of the sport but as a whole there's you know a massive dropout rate you know whether it be injury motivation like you said but let's speak to the sustainability end of that and if you can talk about how you stay 
motivated and what practices you employ to manage your motivation like you were just talking about? Yeah, so I think um, if I could just take a guess, and I, this could be completely wrong, but just from, I guess, observation in my inner circle, I would definitely say that a huge reason why people stop powerlifting is because of injury, right? And that's injury is something that in any sport, it's, you know, at some point unavoidable, you know, hopefully best case scenario is that it's infrequent and it doesn't, you know, take the athlete out of the game for too long, but even something like, you know, stubbing your toe on a weight, like it happens. Um, Obviously worst case scenario is that it's something that is pretty detrimental to an athlete and it takes them out from practice Um, for weeks, months, they have to get surgery, um, you know, that kind of stuff. And obviously we don't wish that upon anyone, but that happens. And that's a huge reality, especially in a sport that is pretty demanding on your body. Um, Just a little bit. So I would say, yeah, yeah. So I would say, you know, the, the physical aspect of injury, obviously, but you know, that that's the cool thing. It's like when you have an injury such as an ACL tear or, you know, you injure something else, for the most part, it's pretty predictable, the timeline of when you'll be able to continue practicing and get back into, you know, the competition, right? Um, but the biggest thing is, and if that were the case, then every single athlete who was ever injured would go through their, you know, physical therapy and they do everything right. And then they'd be able to just start right back where they left and they, you know, have a thriving career. But the sad reality is that majority of athletes who end up becoming injured, they either don't ever come back to the sport um, or they do come back to the sport and they're forever fearful. So I think that one thing that psychology or just like mental training can help with is obviously the adherence to physical therapy. Um, it's, I don't know if you've ever had an injury, but it's a really daunting feeling to be an athlete on the sideline, mm-hmm. um, watching all of your teammates practice and watching everybody around you continuing to get better. And you are just, you know, like that you see your friends hitting PRs or you see, you know, people are, they're just improving without you. And you're just like, oh, I'm, I'm still here. You know, it's, it's a really terrible feeling. And I think that um, adherence to physical therapy routines. So just, just like we would if we were four weeks out from the meet, like we would never miss a training session. We would never miss, you know, like nutrition, that kind of stuff. Like we, we would be very on top of everything. And I think that instilling that kind of mindset when it comes to adhering to a physical therapy routine like wake up every single morning yeah it might not be the most glamorous thing you're not pulling prs by any means but you're still doing things that can allow you to get better i think that that's you know a huge thing and then whether it be um just coping with the actual pain of your injury um that's something that imagery there's research i'm not just making this up there's research that shows that you can improve your recovery from an injury simply by like thinking about the recovery of the injury. It's actually pretty insane. Um, and then cool. also I think a huge one is just being able to stay competent and stay confident throughout the time off in order to, whenever, you know, you're medically cleared to compete again, um, being able to go in there without like fear of re-injury or, without, you know, feeling like you're no longer as strong as you were prior to the injury or as, you know, capable as you were prior to the injury. I think that, you know, that's, that's an absolutely, the, probably one of the biggest things I would say when it comes to sustainability and powerlifting. Yeah, I definitely agree with a lot of that. Injury is one of the biggest reasons many people do feel that they are frozen in time 
in their lifting yeah. career and everyone's just, you know, bypassing them. And some brilliant yeah. points, Eliana. And to talk to, you know, uh, self-esteem, self-love, you know, um, it seemed to be a moral flaw, you know, and selfish, vain, you know, um, practice to engage in by many people, you know, if you, if you love yourself yeah. and things like that. Um, and studies of, you know, emotional human behavior, self-esteem, self-worth um, are really important in understanding, you know, how a person... Um, feels about themselves and obviously that then influencing their actions, behaviors, outcomes and so on and so forth. So can you talk to us as about how you um, identify where somebody's self-esteem is at, how people can assess these kind of things? Um, obviously they would need to see a psychologist you know professionally, but you know what are some yeah. um, I guess red flags if somebody has low self-esteem as a whole and you know what can they do about that? Yeah, I think um... Yeah, there's a lot of research that shows that, you know, obviously, like, self-esteem can contribute to many different facets of life. Like, we see it, um, and I think a lot of people see it as something that is vain, especially just because of the fact that we're involved in powerlifting, which is already seen to be a very vain sport. Um, people think about self-esteem and self-confidence, and they're like, oh, they just, like, have to feel really good. At, they feel really good about themselves, and they have to have other people, you know, tend to that feeling good about themselves, and it's something that um, a lot of people kind of shy away from. I actually, funny story, I, um, not funny story, but, like, just on top of this, um, a couple weeks ago, I went to um, a middle school, and I did, like, a guest lecture for their PE, their health and wellness course. And we talked about self-esteem and I asked all the girls, I was like, what is it? Like, what do you think about self-esteem? And do you think it's important to have self-esteem? And the majority of the girls are like, you know, self-esteem is good, but not too much self-esteem because you don't want people to think that you're arrogant or you don't want people to, you know, just, just think that you're, all you do is talk about yourself. Um, and that's kind of the, the, I guess, idea that a lot of people feel when they think about self-esteem. But I think that it's really important in research to show that when you have like self-esteem, you're more likely to set a goal and see it through. You're more likely to, you know, seek out opportunities. You're more confident in yourself. You'll do better in school. You'll do better in work. Um, and then you are able to maintain longer and just like healthier and sustainable lasting relationships. So I think, um, just talking about self-esteem, it's obviously super important. So how do we, you know, I guess, acknowledge whether or not a person has self-esteem and like with something like such a bo as bodybuilding, and it's kind of apparent when, you know, when your clients has low self-esteem, they're either, you know, and it's typically related to their body. They're talking about something that they don't like about their body or, you know, they, they, update you with, you know, a fluctuation on weight and then they completely freak out about it or they, you know, are getting closer and closer to a deadline and they're having huge self-doubts. And I think that um, that's something that's pretty apparent when it comes to a sport like that. However, it's something that I think that the majority of people kind of experience at some point in their lives is low self-esteem, low confidence. It doesn't necessarily mean that you hate yourself or you hate your body, but you don't truly believe in yourself and your capabilities to the extent that you should. Um, and I think that it's something that is, is extremely important and there are you know, multiple different ways to improve your self-esteem and your confidence.
awesome. And obviously social media has changed the game in terms of self-esteem because all of a sudden we're, you know, making comparisons all the time. We're seeing other people, you know, their highlight reel of their life and things like that. So in the digital world, you know, improving self-esteem can be a lot harder because we're exposed to a lot more. Um, so what is your take on this and, you know, how do you advise the girls in the Smart uh, Fit Girls program, you know, to deal with social media in relation to building self-esteem? Yeah, I think um, especially when it comes to social media, it's it's crazy how, you know, something that can be so awesome and, you know, connect people in so many ways and be like a really good platform can also be so detrimental to the way that people feel about themselves. Um, you know, we, we see other lifters on social media. We see, you know, people and they, they show, you know, a very small highlight reel of their lives that most of the time, as we know, aren't actual representations of every single thing that goes on in their lives. Um, with Smart Fit Girls, and just to put a little background, it's an after-school program that's kind of built on improving girls' self-esteem and self-confidence. And then there's also um, a physical activity component, which, you know, physical activity and just being involved in sports at an early age has been shown to, you know, not only combat childhood obesity, which is a very prevalent issue, um, especially in the United States, but it's also been shown to improve their self-esteem and self-confidence later down the road. So that's kind of, you know, our goal when it comes to smart fit girls. And the reason why we implement weight training is because it's teaching them a form of physical activity that focuses on, you know, what the body is capable of doing and all the really awesome things, you know, when it comes to putting on muscle or when it comes to getting stronger or, you know, being your personal best as opposed to the very common, um, you know, thing that we're taught as, as women, as men too, probably at a young age is that, you know, we should eat in a way to be smaller. We should exercise to lose weight, to lose fat, that kind of stuff. So when it comes to like social media and teaching these girls, um, who are all adolescent age girls, and it's crazy just the amount of social media interaction that these girls have. They all have Instagrams and Facebooks and Twitters. Um, and they see a lot of the same th things that we do, which is kind of scary. But um, I think just we, we do a unit and it's basically on about um, the power of Photoshop, the prevalence of Photoshop, and then just the way that social media can impact other people. So we kind of talk about, we show them a couple videos that are kind of scary, just how much Photoshop is used when it comes to the fitness industry, when it comes to modeling, when it comes to just advertising in general. So, you know, we can't, we, we're watching TV and we're seeing advertisements. It's not like we choose to immerse ourselves in this, but it's something that we see every day. And whether we realize it or not, it's having an impact often on the way that we perceive ourselves or maybe an impact on like our capabilities or what we should be doing better. So I think um, just first of all, educating these girls and letting them know like, all right, you know, like there's nothing wrong with having social media. It can be a really powerful tool, but you probably shouldn't believe everything that you see because the majority of it, you know, advertising, they use social media to sell things. Um, I don't know if you've ever um, read Jean Kilborn's um, Killing Me Softly. No. Or Killing Us Softly. Okay, so it's basically, it's a book about um, just the power of advertising. And, you know, like, like think about, I guess, like 30, 40 years ago, um, just 
advertisers, they kind of created like an ideal body image when it comes to women. And, you know, they, they create like some sort of standard that women should look up to in order to strive for. And nowadays it's like women doing this to other women. It's like so messed up, right? Like we're, we're supposed to be all in it together. And it's like women who are like, it's just realizing that, um, you know, social media, it's a good platform to have, but it's not something that should be the gold standards by any means. Um, and I think that the more confident that you are when it comes to your own abilities or, you know, whatever your goals are, um, the more, the higher your self-esteem will be. So when, you know, important aspect that we teach these girls and it's something that I've been applying to myself and then as well as my clients, it's like the power of education. Um, you know, being aware of, uh, you know, nutrition, being aware of, like, we teach the, the middle schoolers, you know, different body parts. Um, we teach them, you know, muscular anatomy and, like, okay, we don't only use our, you know, biceps in order to bicep curl, but it's really important for everyday living activities, like picking up your little baby sister or, you know, like doing your laundry, that kind of stuff. So I guess educating them on the importance that their body um, plays in many other aspects of life. You know, I mm. think that a lot of times we get so caught up in looking a certain way or, you know, working out to, you know, for some competitive edge, whatever it is, that we take for granted um, the fact that our bodies are really freaking cool and that, like, honestly, like, yeah, I, I like my legs and they're strong and they're muscular, but they allow me to get out of bed every single day and walk to my kitchen or walk to work or whatever it is, like something just like an activity that I take for granted, like every single day, like I'm taking for granted right now the fact that I can talk to you, which is yeah. like kind of insane in itself, right? <laughs> so I think um, educating them on, you know, the purpose that their body serves um, and eating in a way and enforcing like, or not enforcing, but just like educating them in a way to eat that powers, you know, their body instead of, you know, we ask the girls, okay, what do you know about nutrition? And the first thing that comes out of their mouths are things that their parents taught them, like carbs are bad, you shouldn't mm. eat carbs, or, you know, you shouldn't eat fats. And it's really important, like we, we teach them like, okay, that's actually not the case. Like, the, you know, protein, fat and carb, they all play their own vital and valuable role in your nutrition, um, and teaching them all of those different roles. So they're just more educated when it comes to that stuff. And they're not going to just buy into the latest, you know, Instagram posts of their favorite model, you know, saying that carbs are bad or don't eat fats or whatever it is. Um, so that's like a huge one. And then just, you know, like being able to allow them to like our, the, the entire program is based off of the self-determination theory by Ryan and Desi. So yeah. it, um, it, focuses on um, autonomy, relatedness, and competence. And I think that those are three things that if you are constantly nurturing those, or if you have somebody that might be nurturing those, those are things that will absolutely improve your motivation. It'll improve your self-esteem and you'll set goals and they'll have personal meaning to them. Um, so, and that's, that's, I think one of the most important things, like I love the relatedness aspect. So just being and interconnecting with people who have similar goals as, as you or similar mindsets who are encouraging, who are uplifting, um, that kind of stuff. And I think that, you know, that's something that you can either find with social media or it can be a place where there's just a lot of negativity and people just bashing on people for no reason. 
Um, so we encourage these girls, like, all right, like find a group of girls, like look around you. These all these girls who you might not have ever like been friends with inside of school, like they all have a common interest as you. Um, relate to them, like you know, use them, support each other, lift each other up, and that's um, something that can absolutely improve self-esteem. Yeah, I definitely agree. And community, community is one of the cornerstones. You know, obviously, self-determination theory has you know discussed relatedness, but community and being around people who have similar values, beliefs, and you know, goals is really important, especially for yeah adolescents. In the case of the Smart Fit Girls program, Liana. And obviously, as a coach and mentor to these young girls, you get to work with them on quite a you know, deep level, I presume, on many levels. And what have been a lot of the common concerns besides, obviously, the fear of carbs and whatnot that they're getting from their parents? But what have been a lot of the trends or, I guess, commonalities amongst these young uh, you know, female adolescents in relation to their body image and self-esteem? Yeah, I think um, that's, you know, something that whenever I first signed up to be a coach for, I had no idea the, you know, how profound and how deep our meetings would be. Um, Obviously, it took a while for them to get to know us, but we do some pretty extensive or intensive training in order to be able to deal with some situations. But there are some things that, you know, you, you hear a girl and where we do like an anti-bullying lesson, right? Um, And I mean, it's it's insane some of the things that come out of these girls' mouths. Um, and, you know, when it comes to body image, just, you know, not being able to even say one positive thing that they like about their bodies, um, calling themselves fat, saying their parents call them fat. It, like, it's things that you would, like, would literally just blow your mind. Um, and then, obviously, with bullying, it's something that is really common around the adolescent age, especially when it comes to girls, is not only things that, you know, that, that people aren't just born with bad body image. You know, you're a baby and you're innocent and then you grow up. And these are all things that we're learned, whether they're from parents or whether from other people. So I think, um, yeah, a huge thing is just, you know, educating them. Like bullying is something that is real. The majority of times, like when somebody has a negative thing to say about somebody else, um, that's not constructive. It doesn't have, it's not rooted and, you know, helping their own personal development. It's just something that's really ugly and negative. Mm. Um, a lot of those things can stem from low self-esteem and low self-confidence. So we teach them, um, you know, obviously, like, it's important to love other people. It's important to tell other people nice things. It's important to help people when you can. Like, it doesn't, you know, obviously, we all do that, and it comes very naturally to the people that we love and the people that are important to us. Um, but even just, you know, strangers, people that are, you know, you, you're at a restaurant who's serving you, that kind of stuff, treating them with compassion and respect. Um, obviously, you, you have no idea what they're going through. Um, they might be negative to you or they might be a little ugly to you, but it's important to, you know, always try to be as respectful as you can mm-hmm. just because um, it not only helps with your own self-esteem. Like I know for me, whenever I'm helping somebody and I make a person feel good or I compliment someone, it makes me feel good about myself. I'm like, I just made their day and that felt really awesome. But um, yeah, it can help them as well. So we teach them, you know, like the importance of kindness to others, but also obviously more important kindness to yourself because it's something that, you know, I think that I I work with women who are, you know, grown women, And it's insane that 
throughout whatever experiences that they face, whether it started from at a young age or maybe, you know, feelings of, you know, not being in control or competent, like throughout college or whatever it is. But these women come to me and they're like, oh, I just feel really ugly about myself. I'm, I'm gross. I'm like, I just want to lose some weight. Like they're just so harsh and negative to themselves. And I think that this is something that is rooted, you know, at a young age mm-hmm. um, because we pass it down. You know, we we say, I mean, I'm not a mom, but I can just imagine these girls' moms, they say negative things about themselves. Like, oh, I look fat in this dress. They don't really realize, you know, like, the like their daughter. Has, have, yeah. Yeah. Like their daughter thinks, you know, they're the most amazing person. Like I know for me, like I think my mom is just the absolute best, most beautiful woman in this world. And when she says something negative about herself, it impacts me. I'm like, how could you think that about yourself? You know, how, like, am I like, I'm not lying to you. You know, are you calling me a liar? I think you're beautiful. Um, how can you say so negative, so many negative things about yourself? So I think that, um, that's something that, it's sad because a lot of these girls, you know, we, we grew up and we're influenced by the people around us. And that's the biggest thing is we, we can't help or we can't change, you know, I guess our environments and how we grew up, but you can also try to make an influence and allow people to see things in a different way. Yeah, I think that's very true. I think it all starts at home and, you know, a lot of these, uh, issues do arise, you know, from a young age, and it's very, very cool to see you, you know, working with uh, younger girls and you know being so driven and passionate about making a difference, Liana. And final thing I wanted to ask, Liana, what's next? When are you getting back on stage or the platform? Yeah, so um, the goal actually was to compete this past year. Um, and then, unfortunately, I did have a couple of medical issues come up over the summer that I had to get procedures for. Um, they were completely unexpected. I actually haven't really talked much about them. I maybe will at some point. But, um, yeah, I think that that was pretty detrimental. And I remember thinking, um, like, and they're, they're kind of serious. <laughs> um, I'm okay now, but they were kind of serious. And I remember thinking whenever it happened, whenever I found out, I was like, holy cow, like this is going to impact my competition plans this year. Like me and Birdo planned on competing. I was going to do WMBF Worlds. I was going to, you know, make my awesome comeback, all that kind of stuff. And then I realized that that was the first initial reaction to this this medical issue that I found out that was pretty, um, I would say, emotionally impacting. Um, and it made me realize, like, holy cow, I need to take a step back and I need to uh, – um, prioritize, you know, what's really important in my life. Mm. Um, and if anything, it made me like, yeah, it was a bummer. I wasn't able to compete, but it made me take a step back and like realize like, I am so thankful for my health. I'm so thankful for, you know, my ability to just, just wake up and go on a five mile walk every single morning. I actually, like since that happened, I've literally walked every single morning like, and I, I don't sleep in anymore. It was just one of those things I was, it was pretty life changing, but, um, yeah, it just started making me prioritize, um, other things. So it made me prioritize my relationships. It made me prioritize like my business. Like mm-hmm. I don't know exactly what my, I guess, career path in the next, you know, five years will be because I kind of want to do everything like I want to coach and then I want to write a book and then I want to work with kids and then I want to work with high-level athletes and it's just like a big jumbled mess of things right but um more than anything it's kind of given me the urgency to wake up every morning and just 
make three things a priority at the time and then pursue them with everything that I've got. Um, and then it's also made me, I guess, rekindle a love for training, just mm-hmm. to freaking train that I lost a couple of years ago. I think like kind of what cool. we, we talked about. Yeah. We talked about like when you're an athlete and you're, it's becomes part of your lifestyle. Like it's, it's great. You see all this progress, you see improvement, but it also becomes your life. Um, and it can be really easy to offset, um, you know, having balance when it comes to all the other aspects of your life. So for me, it was just like, you know, I'm just fortunate to be able to go to the gym. I'm actually going to the gym after we get off this podcast and I'm going to train and it's going to feel awesome. And I don't have a specific goal and I don't have a deadline, but I'm going to act like I do. You know, I continued dieting kind of or not even dieting, I would say, but like my nutritional habits became so much better when I stopped prepping because it was crazy because it, it wasn't like a chore to me. It wasn't something that was daunting and it wasn't like, Oh, I can only eat 1400 calories today. Like it was something that I was like, all right, like I'm going to eat in a way that's conducive to my long-term goals. I'm not competing this year, but I will at some point. Um, so yeah, I guess to answer your question, um, I'm not sure I would like to compete. Um, for sure, at some point in both. Right now, I'm kind of um, on the rise back to training. Um, I'm getting stronger. I think I'm probably actually the strongest I've ever been. I just haven't been training in a way that's been specific to powerlifting. But I think that once I do, I'll see that I'm I'm really freaking strong, and that's exciting. I've seen those um, single arm dumbbell presses. They're pretty monster. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Hopefully, that'll translate over to my poverty bench. We'll see. <laughs> <laughs> but... Um, yeah, and then when it comes to when it comes to competing in itself, um, I actually set a goal for myself, and uh, I stopped my dieting phase a couple months ago, and then I told myself, you know what, I'm not gonna diet for a long time. Um, cool. I'm at a point where, like, typically in my off season, I'll get like 30 pounds over my stage weight, and it's something that's always really hard to get off. Um, and then I, I realized that even myself, like we kind of talked about the unhealthy tendencies to like, you know, go a little crazy and then want to rediet and go a little crazy. And I'm guilty myself of like having in the past, you know, having an expo that I felt I needed to diet for or, you know, a random photo shoot that I felt I needed to diet for. And it's not only like self-sabotaging to your gains, obviously, because you're just not going to be seeing improvements um, when you're continuing to do that. But I think that it just instills like a really negative way of thinking that um you know it's it's a it's like an on or off switch like if I'm not competing in the near future I'm not gonna have any behavioral habits that show that and also the fact that like we just like as especially as women I, I think men do this too but like the fact that like you need to spend the majority of your life dieting um and restricting calories and I think that that's a huge problem that our industry does um and i will say that i've probably spent like i'll look at like the past like five years um and i've probably spent like good amount of that time dieting whether it be for competitions or just you know to look good for a vacation so that's kind of like the goal right now is like all right like i'm going to eat in a way that's responsible and that's conducive to my progress um because we always have room to keep getting jacked and strong but um i'm also just going to challenge myself to just not diet so if i end up you know gaining five six pounds over the holidays okay that was a conscious decision that I made um and I want to like be able to be okay with that 
without feeling the need to offset that. So yeah. I don't know how long it's going to last, um, but I want to do it as long as possible, not only for like myself, um, but also just to kind of, you know, be an influence to an industry that is just so diet focused. I think that um, being okay with where you're at um, and, you know, being having goals to improve in other ways that are only based on your body composition. I think that that's super important. There are a lot, a lot more important things in this world other than looking a certain way. So I think, um, yeah, by focusing on just, you know, being comfortable and like just, I, I have so much gratitude for just the, the things that my body is capable of doing right now. Um, and then also just continuing to want to put like quality and solid information out there and continue helping people in a way that's conducive to all areas of their life. Um, so yeah, I don't know. We'll see. That's whenever cool. I compete, it'll be good though. I want to do women's bodybuilding. <laughs> so <laughs> I think it's, I'm, yeah. I think that's a brilliant point in that you don't need to compete to still be an athlete and especially in, you know, these sports. And I think that being able to dedicate you know, the same amount of effort towards other goals that are, you know, related to, you know, your sport is equally as important as, you know, being able to do so when you have to, you know, enter a contest prep or, you know, a competition prep for the platform, whatever the case may be. So I think that's very cool. And I've loved our chat today. So I just wanted to say big thank you for your time. Guys, make sure you check Liana out and everything she does. I'll put uh, details in the description box below so you can all follow her. She's a pretty cool chick, as I'm sure you're all aware now. Again, thank you, Liana, and we'll speak to you next time. Thank you. It was my pleasure. Thank you. Thank you.